Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. Season 4, Episode 10. The New State. I don't care who you were, the general began. I don't care what you've done. He continued. He looked out at the newcomers like an eagle eyeing a field full of rats trying to decide which one to eat first. His audience was the assembled remnants of the king's men, which Brent had brought back from the D.C. Numbering a dozen, they stood uneasily in their dirty clothes. The wounded sat in wheelchairs. Some stared at the floor or off into empty space, exhausted and defeated and depleted. Others glowered like defiant teenagers. Brent's men stood guard at the front near the door. Brent stood nearby at ease, legs spread, hands behind his back. They were inside the great Cold War bunker in what might be called an assembly room. Faux wood grain folding tables stood in classroom rows. Metal chairs were stacked against the walls. The place reeked of industrial cleaner, the acrid burn of disinfectant barely masking the sulfurous reek of hundreds of corpses. Even though it had been months since those dead bureaucrats were dragged out and disposed of in the red clay pit on the hillside, dull and lifeless fluorescent lights flickered overhead, painting the scene with a washed-out yellow, like an overexposed old photograph. It gave the place a faded quality, faded like the old warnings and notices that hung on the walls and had been hanging there for decades. I don't care, the general continued, chewing the words. Your politics, your race, your nationality, none of that matters anymore. Today is a new day. Today is your fresh start. He paused and smiled. Today is your birthday. The general paced back and forth with short, straight-back strides like a caged tiger. He bit off each word. 
tasting them and digesting them for their moral content. He was tall and broad-shouldered, one of those men that, when he entered a room, everyone turned to notice. He had what could be called executive presence. The way he spoke and carried himself projected purpose, restrained violence, and innate personal power. His uniform was pressed and clean. His shoes reflected the yellow light like bright black windows. Everything about him said, And here is a man to be reckoned with. He had a leather riding crop under one arm. It was an affectation. No one rode horses anymore. For most men, it would only serve to make them look ridiculously self-important. But for the general, it somehow fit. It gave him the aspect of, or somehow put him in league with, generals of previous generations like Patton or Montgomery, men of history, men of action. He stopped pacing and looked at the broken, disheveled, and defiant men. He let his gaze fall on each one individually for a moment, one by one, giving each his unbroken attention for a moment in turn. One of the general's eyes was slightly turned in from neurological damage, a lingering gift from the virus. The general ignored this impediment, and, in fact, the slightly off-kilter focus of his eyes made his stares more intense, more menacing. Each brief inspection was heavy with intent. Some of his targets looked away or down. Some met his gaze with angry eyes. He made note of each. He measured them weighed them, and they knew it. The silence of each individual moment of inspection was pregnant in the room. On the wall over the doorway, a tired electric clock hummed and ticked the long seconds, echoing in the room which was part auditorium and part concrete sarcophagus. The sound accompanied the general's inspection like a tired electric Cold War dirge. The general gave the moment another full second to hang there, and then spoke. You are no longer any of the things you used to be. From this point on, you are the new Americans, and you will act accordingly. First, we're going to get you cleaned up. Then you start your new life. Every one of you is starting at the same place. Every one of you has the same opportunity here. 
If you are willing to be part of the team and able to put in the work, you can be part of something important. We are starting on the ground floor. The opportunity for responsibility and advancement will come as we unite the survivors. You can help rebuild what we have lost. What you have lost. That is our mission here. As the general had been speaking, a sternly dressed woman joined them in the room, carrying an armful of paperwork and waited to be introduced. This is Sergeant Hernandez. She will oversee your induction. You will learn how to become new men. We will teach you. We'll teach you how to dress. Eat, sleep, and work, and when we're done, you'll be a proud tribute to what you will become. You'll be better men. One of the recruits shifted his weight and cleared his throat. The general stepped forward into the man's personal space and stared down at him. You have something to say, recruit? Yeah. The man said, looking the general in the eye through a shock of greasy hair. What if we've had enough of generals and armies? What if we want to get out of here and go back outside, live our lives the best we can? From where I stand, recruit, you don't have a choice in the matter. You tried it your way. You lost. We are offering stability, security, and three square meals a day. Your best choice is to voluntarily join our force for new America. The general paused. Your alternative is the brig. We don't waste a lot of time on recalcitrance in the brig. I suggest you take this opportunity. Screw you, the man said under his breath. With surprising quickness, the general lashed out with his riding crop and struck the man across the cheek. The man recoiled reflexively and brought his hand up to his injured face. Blood trickled from a raised welt. The guards by the doors raised their weapons and looked alert. Captain Dominion, put this one in solitary on one quarter rations. The general said calmly, give him some time to rethink his options. Yes, sir, Brent replied, stepping forward to escort the man who was still clutching his face with a look of anger and fear. Does anyone else have anything to say? The general continued. The rest of the recruits looked at the floor. Good. I'll leave you in the capable hands of Sergeant Hernandez, then. The general sat on a leather couch in the room that was his office. He scratched Maisie behind the ears. The dog snored lightly with one eye held open. He addressed Brent, who had returned after confirming the disposition of the new recruits. What do you think of this new bunch, Captain? 
They're not much, are they, sir? Brent replied. Seems like things are getting bad quickly out there. Agreed. They're not the best specimens, but something is better than nothing, I. We need the help. They'll do. Once we get them up to speed, once they are brought in and invested, they'll be fine, the general stated confidently. And if they aren't, well, we'll deal with that, too, he continued. Not the first bunch of hard men I've had to tame, the general concluded. Brent didn't comment on that. He had learned over the years that when dealing with leadership, fewer words were better. He was confident that the general had a plan, and the general was at his best when executing a strategy. But even so, he had doubts. The general seemed far too confident and gung-ho, given their current situation. Having a purpose and executing that purpose vigorously was all well and good, but it felt at times that they were tilting at windmills. He knew the general accepted careful feedback. Brent felt compelled to say something now, to comment on how the changing landscape of the apocalypse impacted mission parameters. Sir, may I talk freely? Of course, son. From what I'm seeing, things are falling apart in the outskirts a lot faster than we expected. What do you mean? Well, the COG anticipated that some form of local government would survive, but I haven't seen much civil structure anywhere. People aren't picking up the pieces of society. They're all forming small protective groups. There's no concept of state or even city or town. Maybe there was just too much population loss for the system to survive, even in a diminished form. The world outside is just chaos and lawlessness, with only a handful of small tribes clinging to hoarded resources to survive. Brent paused and asked the question he wanted to ask. Doesn't this change our continuance of government mission? Is there enough left to save? Maybe we should reconsider and take on a smaller objective. Son, the general began, First of all, I hear what you're saying. This was to be expected. The nation has suffered a great loss. We can expect some initial chaos, but this is all the more reason for us to stick to our mission. The general warmed to his topic and continued to reinforce his point. Where would we be if great men of the past had given up when faced with challenges? It always seems darkest before the dawn. This is the critical time. This is when we are most needed. The general paused and thought then continued. But I hear you, and I've taken the situation on the ground into consideration. 
What we need to do is unchanged. But we'll start with first steps. We need to build a bridgehead and provide communities a foothold to rally around. And I'm counting on you to help build that bridgehead by bringing in existing communities. The general looked hard at Brent, who met his gaze. Together, we're gonna save this nation. Or die trying? Brent couldn't help from adding in his mind sarcastically. Brent wasn't convinced, but he would set aside his doubt and do what was needed. All he could do was focus on the work and do the best he could. Like the general had said, what was the alternative? The general's plan wasn't any more outlandish than any other plan in these times. At least the general had a plan. One day at a time. How could it be any other way in this unsettled husk of a world that was rapidly changing like a snake eating its own tail? Ouroboros. The constant destruction and rebirth of the universe that the ancients understood. Something would emerge from this chaos. Brent certainly didn't know what it was. The general had his vision of what the new world would be. Mags had hers. Brent honestly could not tell which was better. Or even if it mattered. The general, meanwhile, segued into a new topic, considering the old one closed. Tell me about the communities you found on this trip. Is there anything we can work with? Perhaps, sir, the community at the distribution center has a substantial cache of resources and a well-fueled power generation facility. They're desperate like most groups we've encountered. But they're onboarding outsiders and appear to be more organized than most. One of their leaders is an Army veteran. Brent paused, collecting his thoughts, and continued... They're building a defensive position around that site. As we know, they held off the armed assault from that group of... I guess I'd call them a gang of bandits. That's a conflict our recon team saw from the choppers. Brent continued. Those men I brought back were from the gang that attacked, something called the King's Army. The distribution center people managed to chase them off. It looks like the rest of the gang is withdrawn north, across the river, without much coordination. Interesting, the general said. Will this distribution center work with us? I don't know, Brent said. They weren't very warm to the idea when I brought it up. They feel like the best thing they can do right now is defend what they've got and start a standalone community. Understandable. The general agreed. Short-sighted, but understandable. There are two other groups in the area that the D.C. is in contact with. One at a university, where the surviving students seem to have organized around a leader they call the Kaiju, and a trailer park with some older survivors. All told, there's maybe 150 to 200 people. 
I told them we'd come back and talk to all the groups at the same time. We should get back down there as soon as possible. Things are changing quickly, and they're all under pressure. What's it going to take to get them aligned with our mission? The general asked. I can't tell at this point, Brent responded. They all have limited resources and their own agendas. Rebuilding the government may not be on the top of their list, but with the growing pressures coming at them, we may be able to talk them into working together for mutual support. Like I said, understandable, but short-sighted, the general responded. Let's try diplomacy first. We'll see if we can convince them, organize the trip, We'll take the choppers while they're still operational. It'll be faster, and it's a good show of strength. Helps our negotiating position. It's worth the risk. Yes, sir. I'll get things rolling. They asked to meet at the university campus location. It's central to the others. Good work, son. Let's plan to make the trip tomorrow morning, if the weather is good. The general stood from the couch and crossed a few steps to the window. We'll have to talk with these people, he said as he pulled back the curtain to look out onto the courtyard and show them the light. Understood, sir, but what if they don't want to join us? Well, son, they don't really have a choice, do they? One way or another, we're all in this together. They'll join us one way or the other. The general repeated confidently, his face set with determination and certainty. Brent wasn't sure he liked the sound of that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back, survivors. I hope everyone is living their lives with purpose, or at least with contentment. I know it gets hard when the winter winds drive their icy fingers under the tent flap, but we, we can huddle together for warmth here. I think the freezing weather slows down the undead zombies, doesn't it? I mean, it should, right? But when do we ever let physics and science get in the way of a good zombie story? Like the infamous Norwegian Nazi snow zombie movie Dead Snow from 2009. I can confidently say that this is the best Norwegian Nazi snow zombie movie ever made. But yeah, it's getting cold up here. 
It took a bit of last-minute focus and some help from my friends, but I managed to get this episode out on time. I've been busy with my bill-paying job because, and I know you'll be shocked by this, but after the apocalypse does not pay the bills, and my weird brain sometimes gets wrapped up in trying to do too much and make everything perfect. Never heard of that before, I bet. That's why I like having a set publishing schedule, that date, because it forces me to ship something. And even if I know I could have added more time or added more value, it forces me to get something out. And this is a pro tip for you folks trying to get things done, especially you creatives. Create these constraints that force you to produce important rule ship something because you don't realize that you're all wrapped up in your own head and the value of your art is not in your understanding of it it's in the value when it meets its audience that's where the value is produced and if you don't ship there's no value sorry a little technical there i know you came here to escape the world and now i'm giving you consulting lessons enough of that what is chris reading well, my friends, I finished a little book called Islands in the Sky by Arthur C. Clarke. I think it was from 1950-ish. This is another example of one of those paperbacks I picked up in a used bookstore somewhere. I have not read much, Arthur C. Clarke. I suppose I'm going to need to rectify that. He was one of the big science fiction writers of the 50s and 60s. At one point, he was considered one of the big three, in air quotes, with Asimov and Heinlein. He's probably best known for 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is considered a precedent-setting science fiction movie, and is very much in line with the work of Clark in general. His style, if you will, was to take existing hard science and extrapolate that science into the future. In a sense, he wasn't making up new things. He was taking existing science and existing theory and then world-building with those as a, what if these were developed X years into the future? And this was a common sentiment in the golden age of science fiction. These writers, they didn't see their work as science fiction per se. They saw it as future science. They had this fixation with making the science credible in their future fiction. And I think that's changed. If you look at modern science fiction, no one even bothers to explain why there's gravity on a spaceship anymore. Modern science fiction is is closer, I would say, to fantasy than science in a lot of cases. So anyhow, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the genesis of this movie is that Arthur C. Clarke was having he was talking with Stanley Kubrick, the director, about potentially making a science fiction film based on some of Clark's earlier stories. And Kubrick said, no, I have a better idea. Instead of making a movie, what we're going to do is we're going to write a novel together, and in parallel, we'll write the screenplay, and then we'll do the movie. And that's what happened. And the movie was lauded for its scientific accuracy. It had space travel. It had the interaction with a self-aware AI and a bunch of weird alien stuff that I didn't get at all. So I got these similar future science vibes from the short novel I read, Islands in the Sky. 
It was all about, oh, how cool is weightlessness and rockets and atomic energy. Typical 1950s view of the future. And it was a YA novel, a young adult novel, which made it a bit formulaic. Take a whip-smart teenage boy and send him out into near-space Earth orbit for some adventures. Not too terribly tasking, not Finnegan's Wake. But that was Clark's gig, looking at space travel and what it could be like from a 1950s perspective. And he was prolific. 26 novels, 17 nonfiction books, countless stories, as well as TV, movies, and a host of other pursuits. Looking through the bibliography, the one that looks kind of interesting is Rendezvous with Rama. I might have to source a yellowed, dog-eared copy of that from the used bookstore to read. So that is Arthur C. Clarke. I also reread The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. Yeah, I did. Because it's short, it's an easy read, more of a novella than a novel. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick a direct quotation from Wikipedia in the blog post for this entry. But the gist of it is, let me sum up. <laughs> Hemingway was getting old at this point in his career. He put a lot of work into a big novel called Across the River and Into the Trees, which ended up being his last full novel in 1950. He got the crap kicked out of him by the critics, and he was really hurt about that. But he was also working on this other short novella about an old man and a marlin, and it was published, and it was a big, 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 big success and a big seller. Then it won Papa, the Pulitzer, and the Nobel. So I wanted to revisit it to see if it held up. And it really does. It's a story that, it's, it's just pertinent, right? It can be used as a metaphor for all the challenges we face in life and how we react to them. The prose is wonderful. It's a simple story, almost a parable. And in the end, we are all Santiago in his little skiff, battling the great marlins of life and being harassed by ugly sharks. It's a great little book. It holds up well. Go read it if you haven't, and read it again if you have. So what is Chris watching? I spent the last week binge-watching through Freaks and Geeks, which came out for one season in 1999-2000, and it was fascinating. I loved it. It was set in 1980 high school, and it was spot on to the themes of my own high school experience. I could see people I knew in those characters, and maybe even a little bit of myself. The most prominent thing about this show is the cast. It is executive produced by Judd Apatow and has teenage versions of James Franco, Jason Siegel and Seth Rogen as main characters. And they're very well cast. I really like this show. Love the characters. Love the music. It's a thoughtful show. And it's gentle, too. It uses a light touch when it comes to the sex and drugs and rock and roll. It could have taken the easy way out. It didn't. Some of the situations were so realistic and hit so close to home that I cringed. I was like, ah, I can't watch this. Had to fast forward through some. Not to mention the Grateful Dead tie-in. Now, I feel compelled to tell a Grateful Dead story. 
I won't go into the long version of the Grateful Dead story. I'll give you the short version. Are you ready? Okay. So I was out with my buddy last Friday night down at the local brewery. Shout out to Dirigible Brewing, my local brewery. Those are my rules, right? You need a local brewery and a used bookstore. That's when you have a good town. We were watching slash listening to my favorite local Grateful Dead cover band. Shout out to Deadbeat. They do this great three-person acoustic set once a month down at the brewery. And my buddy says, my wife just watched this show called Freaks and Geeks, where they never made a second season, but it ends with Ripple from the Grateful Dead playing while the girl goes off to follow the dead on tour. And that's how I found Freaks and Geeks. And I'll, at some point, I'll write a longer version of the dead story. But on to business. So, my apocalyptic friends, we are still cooking along, according to ACAST, at 18 to 19,000 downloads a month, which is great. Thanks for the support. We could always use more. Share with your fiction-friendly friends. Ooh, a little alliteration there for you. Fiction-friendly friends. Say that ten times fast. We have an even 440 fans on our Facebook group as of this writing. Come over and join us. I post curious things that I find, and we laugh at dad jokes. I also got an unsolicited year-in-review presentation from Spotify, where many of you are listening to the podcast right now, as a matter of fact. And according to them, and this is only for the Spotify listenership, According to them, some stats now, the pod, this podcast grew by 10% on Spotify in 2023. The most listened to episode was episode one, which makes sense. People listen to the first episode and then they decide whether or not they like it. And the ones that do like it keep listening and the rest move on, which is perfectly fine. In the biz, we call that qualifying the customer out. People share the show. They share it a lot from Spotify via text messages, Facebook, etc. There's another statistic. And there was an interesting set of statistics around our super fans. After the Apocalypse is the top podcast for 312 people on Spotify. And it's in the top 5 of 1,500 and in the top 10 of 2,500 and I found all this data mildly interesting. One thing about podcasting is that you have no idea who is on the other side of the headphones. You don't get much feedback. It's an odd and unbalanced virtual relationship where I have, well, at least 312 people who love what I do that I probably have never interacted with. They know me. They know my work. But I have no idea. Odd, but actually okay with me because I'm a bit of an introvert and 312 or more close friends to interact with on a daily basis would probably drive me to a cloister in a monastery somewhere in the desert. But seriously, my apocalyptic brethren and brethrenas, I get great joy from serving and doing so with intent. So thank you the lovely 312 saints that dot our apocalyptic firmament. Life, one might say, is just a box of rain. You keep being you, keep your heads up, keep your eyes wide open, 
and keep surviving. Mm-hmm.